Thank you, Andy, for stepping in and, <clears throat> and reading the passage this morning. I appreciate that. Uh, we'll be looking at that passage this week and next week, that um, famous conversation between Jesus and Pilate. Uh, before we get started, I do have a, uh, a kind of a joyous announcement. Uh, many of you remember uh, Steve and Lisa Mikey. Well, uh, Nathaniel Gray Mikey was born on Saturday at 12.46 p.m. and weighs 7 pounds, 8 ounces. So we're very happy for them. Uh, they sent us some pictures. He looks very healthy, very cute, as always, and so as we would expect. And so we want to send our, our love and our prayers out there that way. And uh, they're in Corvallis now, if you didn't know. So um, many of you remember them. Uh, they served in Bolivia for a year or two also. And um, so we want to just thank the Lord for that, for that safe delivery and for that, that baby that, um, and that house that will be full of love and grace. So let's pray before we get started. <clears throat> Father, we do recognize you as the creator of all things, and, and every, every birth reminds us of that. We thank you for your creative power that uh, we see just in the, the area around us when the light comes up in the sun in the morning and uh, that first morning light that just looks so beautiful and so so rich. We thank you for that and your creative powers of the, of the universe that even cares for, uh, reaches down and, and not one baby is born without you knowing that. Father, we, we praise you for the life that stirs within us and um, the, yes, in our families. We thank you for the, the world that we, we're living in, that the earth and the sky that we, you have given us, that you have made this our home. And so, Father, we ask that you um, uh, guide us and to take care of it and to be comfortable within it. Uh, Father, we thank you for the work that you've given us. We thank you for um, uh, the time that we spend with uh, resting and uh, so many options we have. We thank you for providing for us. We thank you for friends that that build us up and that uh, in it, that uh, we can laugh with and that we can enjoy and enjoy food with. And we are so grateful for the beauty that you've brought in this, this world, uh, that you've used humankind to create beauty, just as uh, as you intended. And Father, we know that it's stained, we know that it's, that it's broken, but uh, we also know that you are here and we look for you in it. And we thank you for your mercy that is never ever ending and the joy that brings to us that we have hope and we have trust and we have uh, confidence in you. So Father, we're asking that you take this morning uh, that we have together through the, the miracle of modern technology and that you focus our eyes and our hearts on who you are, what you've done, and, uh, and what you continue to do in our lives. And Father, we, we take the time, of, a minute of silence to pray for those that we know are suffering, that are hurting, that are, that are ill, that are going through uh, marital issues, um, maybe even divorce, that have lost loved ones. We think, of, uh, we think of these people in this time of silence, and we just want to hold them before you. Uh, as we name off each one in our mind, that we hold them before you, and we ask you to minister to them with your spirit in a way that is that cannot be explained in any other way except that it was done through you so father we give you these few seconds of silence as we pray for those who who need support need help need encouragement um, need lifting up need uh, need forgiveness
Father, we thank you for the light that never fades within our soul. We thank you that you have, have um, rescued us from darkness. Father, we ask that you uh, teach us, encourage us, prompt us to open windows of our lives and of our church so that the light radiates out from that, that um, people will know that your presence is here among us. Father, we ask that you let no corner in our souls be left in darkness, but that it contains your light. Let there be nothing within us that could darken your spirit and your love. Father, we ask that the spirit of him whose life you gave for us empower us, encourage us, teach us, convict us, and to lead us into a closer walk with you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are continuing our service, our series this morning on these values that we have talked about the last few weeks of, of love and justice and beauty and uh, freedom. And uh, we turn our attention this week to, and next week also, to truth. I didn't want to do the whole thing by, by a video, so we are going to do it in two, two, uh, two weeks. So we'll basically just introduce it uh, this, this morning, uh, that truth does matter, um, and it does point us to the Savior. And there's quite a few conversations of, uh, with Jesus about truth, and the New Testament talks a lot about truth. We are to be people. We are to be lovers of truth. Um, it, can't be, it, it seems sometimes out of reach, but that is not a cause for despair but uh, a plea to help to us, for us to ground ourselves into the truth of the big story. Uh, so we're going to look at it, and it's going to be some bad news and good news sort of message, and this week is going to be the bad news, uh, but we will get to the good news on next Sunday, so you wanna, you'll be sure and want to come and, and tune into that next Sunday as we look at the good news. But today, we're just going to look at uh, maybe some of the negative aspects and what the struggles we have, and that's why I've called the, this this uh, pat this message, truth decay, uh, because that's what it feels like sometimes in our world that the truth has just been in the, in a process of decaying. Uh, a couple of years ago, the internet was uh, kind of kind of exploded when a rapper named Bobby Ray Simmons, also known as Bob, I think is what he goes by, he started tweeting reasons why he believed in the flat Earth. Uh, he writes in his in his uh, in his Twitter account. No matter how high in elevation you are, the horizon is always eye level, meaning the world is flat. Sorry, cadets, I didn't want to believe it either. Well, the story got even bigger when uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, the astrophysicist, got involved, and he started tweeting some evidence uh, of why the why the world is a is a sphere, is a globe. And he writes, he says, "Listen up, Bob, once and for all." Small sections of large curved surfaces always look flat to the little creatures that crawl upon it. Well, you would think he would kind of give us the second thoughts, but B.O.B., he held his ground. He doubled down and, and uh, said, nope, this, you know, he said, no matter how high of a mountain you, you climb, you still see the horizon at eye level. Therefore, the world is flat. So he's not giving in. Uh, but he's not the only one. Now, most of you probably know that there is a flat earth society. And it actually dates back all the way back to the, to the 18th century. And their motto is, We man the guns against oppression of thought, and the globularists 
lies is a new lies of a new age. He didn't say globalist. It's globularist. In other words, those crazy people who think the world is a sphere, is a globe. Uh, it goes on, standing the reason, standing with reason, we offer a home to those wayward thinkers that march bravely with reason and truth in recognizing the true shape of the earth, flat. This is not a hoax. There is a lot of people who believe that the world is flat, and we can laugh at them and we can call them crazy, but to be honest, they're really not that different from you or me. Uh, as human beings, believing falsehood is kind of our birthright. Uh, we have the total right to believe misinformation and believe what is false. That's, that's kind of how our minds work. And there are reasons behind that, and there are reasons why we believe that things are not true. Uh, it's easy to, it's really super easy to dupe people on the right and on the left. We can chalk it up to lunacy and craziness and delusion, but really the answer is not that simplistic. Uh, it's, but what makes this so easy to, to fool people? Well, the answer is that uh, as individuals, we simply do not know enough to justify almost anything we believe. Uh, for example, uh, I would imagine that most of you listening at home believe that the earth revolves around the sun. Most of us believe that, but on what basis do you believe that? Do you understand all the dynamics, all the forces of gravity and physics, and, and uh, have you done all the... Um, the astronomical observation to explain how the Earth revolves around the sun? I, I kind of doubt it. Uh, we, we all kind of know that cigarettes are bad for you, but do you know how tumors are formed? Do you know what is it in the, in the cigarettes, that, that chemical that causes things to, to disrupt and how the, what the mechanism of the cells are? Do you understand how that all works? Um, well, probably not. Uh, a few years ago, I was talking to... Uh, uh, a true anti-vaxxer. This is a person before COVID, way before COVID, and she was not going to vaccinate her her um, her sons. They they have older kids now, and um, and I said, you know, did have you ever done any primary source research? Because oh yeah, I did all kinds of research on it. And I said, have you were you in the lab taking blood and looking at observations and uh, and running tests on these things and observing the results and then looking at the data and seeing how the data and she goes. Well, no, I, I didn't do that. And instead of criticizing her, we have to realize that that's how we treat almost all of our information. We have to realize that we do the exact same thing. Uh, as individuals, we simply just do not know enough to justify what we believe. Uh, it's not based on, um, on, uh, on things that we have actually observed. Most of what we believe is not based on what is in our heads. And there's a good reason for that. And that's because there's not much in our heads. Uh, there was a, a psychologist in the 80s named Thomas Langer who did a study, and he wanted to try to measure how much data a brain could handle, it could hold. And I don't know if his techniques were good or not. I'm just going to use them as an example and say, let's just, for argument's sake, let's say he's right. And so he, he looked at information that these people got and then how well they remembered it, and then he extrapolated it over a 70-year lifespan and he concluded that the human brain contains about, can contain about one gigabyte of data. One gigabyte. Now, um, I can go on Amazon. In fact, I checked on it today or yesterday that, um, yes, I can buy a thumb drive that has 128 gigabytes in it for $18. 
So there really isn't a lot in our head. Uh, Philip Fernbach, who teaches at the University of Oregon, he studies cognitive uh, development and cognitive science. And he, he always, his field of study was why individuals make decisions. And when he discovered this, this little bit of information, he was as shocked as anybody. He, he basically says, we are not made to know a lot, basically. Uh, we're not made to think on our own. And, and the thing that separates us from other animals is not how much data we can hold in our brain, it's that we collaborate, that we have the capacity to share knowledge and work toward shared goals. That's what makes us different than the animals, that, we, that thinking is a social process. It, it emerges out of interactions with those around us. Now, we know that can be good and that can be bad, uh, but the fact is we tend to believe those who are around us, that uh, those who we have contact with, um, and it's very important that we understand that when we talk about truth. Uh, people who do research are not necessarily doing research, they're really doing uh, collaboration. So how do we know what we know? That's one of the questions. And most times, eventually, human beings eventually get it right. Uh, even the truth actually does, does come out. So we're going to look at this as truth. Uh, the, like I said, the good news and the bad news. And this week is kind of going to be a bad news, uh, that why we do struggle with, with this truth. Uh, this collaboration thing can be a real plus, and generally it is, but it can also have its downside. Uh, we can build Im immense cathedrals. Uh, have you ever seen the cathedrals in Europe or in Latin America? They're just they're just enormous and they're just gorgeous. I showed some pictures of churches, but we're talking large cathedrals that take hundreds and hundreds of years to complete. You know, sometimes centuries to complete. And so we can, with this collaboration, we can build cathedrals. But on the downside, we can also build a house of cards, uh, things that will just collapse under the weight of truth. So we're going to look at truth this morning. Truth matters. Uh, we know it matters. Uh, it supposedly matters to us. When a witness is called in the court, what are they asked? They are asked, do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? And uh, they're supposed to answer yes. But we all know that that is an ideal that cannot be reached. Uh, we don't want to know uh, it, uh, every the whole truth. We, we were gonna, if we want to know the whole truth of what happened that day, we would still we'd be there for months. And all the relevant facts would get lost in all the little details. So we don't really want that. We just want the relevant truth. Uh, we don't. We know that uh, people see things from different perspectives, and we don't. And we know that um, we don't know the reasons why, the motives why. The, per the witness may have seen that person driving that car hit that pedestrian, but there are other things that they they may have missed. Uh, when I was teaching Bible study methods at uh, in Puebla, I used to show them this short clips of a film. And uh, from an old film, an old black and white film, usually from It's a Wonderful Life with Jimmy Stewart. And then I'd ask him a series of questions on just this 10-minute this ten minute clip. And, and if they got 50% of them right, that was good. That, and they, were, they all watched the same screen. They all watched the same film. But they all saw different things. So it's really, it, it's really hard. But everyone knows that truth is important. And we certainly want everyone to tell the truth. Uh, we also realize that we have selective memories, that we pull things out of our, our memories, these tiny number of facts that we have in our heads. We, 
we, we put them together to present a picture of what we want, of our lives and ourselves and our behavior. Um, but it could also go in the opposite direction. A person who is declined, inclined to uh, feel great guilt or depression may only remember a few facts that fuel this sense of despair and shame. So truth seems, seems to go, go either way. But truth itself is really a thing of beauty, and it's very, very connected to beauty that we looked at last week. Uh, it seems like that's what we want, and, it's, and we know that it's important, and it points us, I would argue, that it points us to God. That's the desire for truth. But we also know that it's broken, and it points to, to the brokenness of man. And so we think truth is, is this thing of beauty, but it seems like the world is just leading us into these self-defeating circles over and over and over again. But we know in deep down, truth matters to us. It matters in our heart. Truth also matters to God. Uh, just a few verses I want to mention here in, in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Leviticus 19 says, uh, you shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. And you shall not lie to one another. Ephesians 4, Paul says, So then putting away falsehood, let us speak truth to our neighbors, for we are members of one another. And Paul says, as, uh, tells Titus, Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, be gentle, and show courtesy to everyone. And he goes on down in the same chapter, in chapter 3, but avoid stupid controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. And then the, the verse, famous verse we looked at last week in John chapter 8, when we talked about freedom, when Jesus says, you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. So we all know that truth matters. It matters to us, and it matters to God. We are supposed to be, as Christians especially, we are supposed to be truth-telling creatures, but, but, we've dis but, but we've discovered that it's just not that easy. Uh, it's not as easy to find out the truth as we thought. So the trouble is that we have so many stories, and we know that these stories have more than one side, and that the, we, we know that these stories have more than two pairs of eyes watching it, and with more than, more than two, two or three minds ticking, and, and lots of tongues that are talking. We certainly want everyone to tell the truth, but we know that it comes with all kinds of varieties, and we actually get angry when they don't. So we know that it's broken, and yet we still yearn, just like we yearn for freedom, love, spirituality, and justice. Um, we know we need it, we know we want it, but the perfection, the truth of the perfection of truth just seems just, just out of reach for us. And so the solution is for us to do that, if, if we want the truth, our solution seems to be more bureaucracy, more papers to fill out, more photographs, more fingerprints. Uh, every year, Sue and I would have to go and, and uh, renew our visa. It happened every year around December for us. And uh, so we'd have to turn in all of our papers, and then when they finally get through out of the government, maybe two months later, we would have to go and renew those. And uh, it would got to be a game of what kind of papers they were going to ask for because every year they seem to ask for more papers. And so I would have a folder here with all these papers ready, and they'd say, "We need a copy of your marriage certificate." I got it. We need a copy of your driver's license. Got it. You know, we need a copy of your birth certificate. Oh, dang it! I didn't bring that. You know, and it just got to be a game to try to figure out how many papers they need. Uh, we used to joke that um, 
the Department of Education in Mexico had more photographs of Katie than her grandparents. Uh, all trying to make sure we, this is truth because who knows, Katie could be a terrorist, right? So they, um, it's just we try to overcompensate trying to get, get truth. Well, the book of John probably covers more conversations of Jesus where truth is the, is the subject in the other three Gospels. Um, it's where Jesus is confronted with whether he's telling the truth and, uh, and he and challenges to the truth. And the most famous, of course, is the one that Sue just read, where he is brought before trial by the, the, the leaders of the Jews who decided that, that uh, remember we saw in chapter 11 last, last week, that Caiaphas decided that it's better for one man to die to save the whole nation. And so they bring before Pilate, to, and Pilate interrogates Jesus, and Jesus declares himself to be the king and says, you know, that, that uh, this is the truth. And, and Pilate cynically, in a cynical, very cynical way, says, you know, what is truth? You know, when you're Rome, we get to decide what truth is. Um, what is it? That is probably the most famous. But the real tragedy of all this, uh, of us, us finding, trying to find truth, is the, the effect it has on our relationships. What do we do with people who have different beliefs than we do? What do we do with people who, who seem to know things that we know are not true, that are based on, on what we know, but they don't seem to see it? How do we handle that when someone believes something that we don't believe? Uh, well, it's obvious what the problem is. Uh, if somebody doesn't believe what I believe, the problem is that, well, they must be uh, too stupid to see the truth. Or at least that's really how we feel, isn't it? Uh, actually, there is some truth to that. It's not. My point is that we're not stupid, but uh, very rarely do we arrive at these conclusions through this rational process of looking through evidence, and we don't really understand the issue, the depth of the issue, and they don't really get it. What the what the how complicated this is. They don't really get how complex it is, and they're not really evaluating things. But the problem is. Neither do I. I don't understand it either. Uh, we are all, all of us are channeling our communities of knowledge because that's what we do. That's what humans do. Uh, the knowledge is not in my head and it's not in your head. It's shared. And the things that you care about, those things are shared too. And the point I'm trying to make is that it's not that people are idiots, but we are ignorant. There are things we just don't know. Ignorance is basically a feature of the human brain. It's not just a bug. And if we go through life believing that we individually have it all figured out, then we are in store for a very warped and simplistic view of life that will not function. John, who wrote most about the confrontations that Jesus had in the gospel, he writes in his first epistle, he says that we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And that is true. So if that's true, that we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, then why do we double down? Why do we insist? Why do we keep insisting that we are right and everyone else is an idiot? Uh, that's what the priests were thinking. That's what Pilate was thinking. The priests were there with a purpose to get rid of Jesus, and Pilate was like, when you're wrong, you decide what's true. So why do we insist on that pilot cynicism and the, uh, the arrogance of the priest? Well, one reason is 
moral superiority. And I think this is probably most common in people of faith, that feeling morally superior raises our self-esteem. Because if I'm morally superior, it justifies my righteous anger, for example. Uh, there is a certain self-righteousness that comes with feeling morally superior. Uh, we believe that everybody has sinned. We believed in total depravity as Protestants, uh, but they're more depraved than I am. And uh, they're more totally depraved than I am. And so moral superiority is one reason why we dig in and, set in and double down. Another reason is intellectually superior. We know that knowledge is power in our world. And so if we know more than someone else, then we have more power because we know what really is going on. We really know. And this feeling of being in the know makes us feel special. Um, and then we start to pity or maybe even be outraged at those poor, befuddled masses who are blind or who are asleep. And it's our mission to save mankind from its blindness. And so we feel intellectually secure and superior. And the other reason is our desire for certainty. The world is so complex and we just can't wrap our heads around it. There's so much ambiguity in the world. Uh, if you take postmodernism, the, the idea that there really is no absolute truth, and you couple that with our narcissism, the age of the selfie, then we've got this, we've got a, a cultural disaster on our hands. Uh, we do live in a time of just mammoth un, uncertainty. Uh, we don't know this year. We don't know what the schools are going to do. Are they going to require masks? Are they going to meet? Are they going to, what are they going to do about vaccinations? Uh, uh, we think we've got this pandemic under control and then bam, the, the Delta, Delta variant comes in and um, uncertainty makes us feel insecure, makes us feel unsafe. And so we look for certainty. And part of that certainty seems to be uh, looking for someone to blame. And that makes it easier on us. If we could just do that, if we could just find someone to blame, then everything else will make sense. And uh, it just somehow, even in our subconscious, it may bring us a little bit more of certainty. And I've said this before, but I'll say it again. It's time we give up our need for certainty. It's time we give that up and, and live out of a place of trust instead of a need for certainty. So how do we move? How do we move from a place of this self-righteous certainty to a place where God wants us, this place of truth and love? Um, and I think one of the big issues is this, this lack of empathy is one, one reason why we can't move that far, why we can't move into a place of truth and love. Um, every now and then I read an article or hear, a, hear somebody speak Feels, that I just resonate with, that I feel like it's tell, he's telling my story, that I, he tells the story and it's like, that's me. That's, that's exactly what I've gone through. And one of those was a few years ago, maybe a couple of years ago, um, an article by David French, who I, who I really like. And he was reading, as I read the first paragraph, I thought, this guy is telling my story. He is describing his path. He's a Southerner and he is describing his path through racism and, uh, I've, I've shared with you guys my, um, my path uh, through racism as a, as a long, as a fifth generation Southerner and fourth generation Texan. And uh, I heard lots of stories about my ancestors. I don't know if they owned slaves, but they were certainly deep in the South. They even fought for the Confederacy. Uh, I heard the story about my great grandfather, Richard, 
who uh, was a young man at, during Reconstruction, and uh, the Union soldiers came through and burned, were burning the South, and they, they came to his farm, their farm, his family's farm. And uh, one of the soldiers was threatening to throw a side saddle that belonged to his sister in the fire. And the soldier did it. And my great-grandfather swore that he would find him and would kill him. Well, Richard later became a Methodist preacher. And one Sunday he was preaching. He took his guns out and he put them on the pulpit. That's how he preached. And uh, the soldier came in through the back. And Richard recognized him immediately. And... Uh, and you can see the, the tension, you know, of what, what he was going to do. And he ended up continuing to preach, and the soldier came to Christ. And uh, so that's, that's the story my dad told me. That's family folklore, but uh, that's the story my dad told me. Um, but I like to think that maybe Richard was converted as well, that he had a conversion moment. And I still remember my conversion moments in this journey through racism. I'm old enough to remember bathrooms marked men, women, and colored. I can still go and you can still go in the Dallas County Courthouse and see a, a water fountain with a sign above it that says whites only. And I still remember those moments of conversion for me, uh, a book. And I remember my teacher, Mrs. Pinkham. And, um, and I remember an African-American boss that I had for about five years named L.C. Smith. All those people contributed to this sort of changing my opinion and, um, and I, too, became sort of haunted by my legacy and uh, my ancestors, not because I felt guilty, not because I was, felt like I was responsible for what they did centuries and centuries ago, but the question is, what would I have done? Would I have done it any differently? Because there were generations, generations who lived of Americans who grew up in the cities and the towns who thought slavery was perfectly fine. They defended it, they argued for it, they even celebrated it, they even praised it. And I have to deal with the idea of would I have done any different? Um, they obviously watched the brutality right before their eyes, and I'm sure they probably heard arguments for against slavery. Maybe they were presented as idiots and people who don't understand the South or people who don't understand the economics. I'm sure it was presented that way, but they didn't do anything about it, and I kind of wonder would I have done anything about it, and that, that kind of haunts me. This virus of, um, of, of hate and um, um, fear just removes any kind of empathy whatsoever, and we end up falling into the same trap as the chief priest and Pilate. Uh, the chief priest who have this furious purpose to get rid of Jesus replaces faith and replaces real truth. And Pilate, with his apathy and his cynicism, it just dies. He doesn't do the right thing. The empathy just dies and it becomes this bearable barrier that's insurmountable in between us. So <clears throat> I want to finish up here with some rules for avoiding Pilate's capitulation. How do we avoid Pilate's capitulation? And how do we do the right thing? I think rule number one is that you are not extraordinary, is realize you are not extraordinary. That it's all fine and good for me to think that if I were there, I would have spoke up and I would have freed the slaves. But the truth of the matter is that I have to assume that I probably wouldn't have, that I probably would not have. Um, there's a, a writer who writes for the Atlantic Magazine, and uh, he's a, a, a African-American scholar named Nadashi Coates. 
And he wrote this in, in one of his Atlantic Magazine articles. He says, The upshot of all my black nationalist study was terrifying. Give us the guns and the boats, and we would do the same thing. There is nothing particularly noble about black skin. The fact that we, and I mean all of us, black and white, are in our bones no better than the slave masters, and that is chilling. I don't know if Coates is a Christian or if he's a man of faith or not, but I do know this is biblical truth, that we are not noble, that we are shot through with sin, and uh, when everything around us is right, we probably deserve very little credit for going along, and when everything around us is wrong, uh, we will probably fail and not speak up, and that's the way it is. So I think rule number one is humility that we are not extraordinary. And rule number two is embrace con confession and repentance. We can't go to church and say, I want salvation, I want redemption, I want the love of God, I want to feel the love of God, I want to be moved, and not admit the bad stuff. Uh, any of the damage that I might have caused or any of the false witness that I might have spread, I'm here to tell you that confession and repentance is not something to fear. We should embrace it. It opens up the possibilities of peace. It gives us freedom. And it is necessary for us to see that we all need mercy. We all need justice. We all need truth. And we need unmerited grace. I don't think it's any, any mistake that when John said in chapter 1, verse 14, when he said the word became flesh and the word dwelt among us, and, the word, and, and, and we saw his glory, the glory of the Father, of grace and truth. I don't think it's any mistake that grace and truth go together, that with the truth we're going to need grace. So we need to embrace confession and repentance and not, and not fear it. It will bring freedom and peace. Rule number three, the love of the truth is like love of beauty. Last week we talked about the love of beauty and how that changes us and how it peels us and how it brings peace and just how it it draws us in. It's, it's God's way of inviting us into a relationship with Him. Well, truth is a lot like that. It is a lot like, uh, it is a lot like uh, beauty. It strengthens us. Uh, we, can't, um, when we can't arrive at truth uh, because of our suspicious, suspicions or our cynicism or our hatred. Then what's best is we just say, I don't know than to try to grasp at something with blame or with or let our imaginations run wild with us into conspiracy theories and things like that. It's better just to say, I don't know. But when we find truth, it brings peace. And I, I, I feel like as far as I can gather, most of the people in our culture, they are struggling with passions of anger and anxiety and fear. And all this, they are convinced that someone else is to blame. And they blame it on the schools, they blame it on the courts, they blame it on the libs, they blame it on the fascists or the communists or whatever. And they blame it because it's because it's what they're looking for. But what they're really looking for is truth. And they believe that that, that line that runs between good and evil does not run between their hearts, but it runs between us and them. And that just brings nothing but uh, a furious, anger, suspicious, anxiety and, and hearsay. Seeking truth is like beauty. It will strengthen our hearts. Truth will strengthen our hearts. If it doesn't strengthen your heart, then it's not truth. Truth is what does that. 
and it must be accompanied with mercy. So number four, speak only with your own words call you to transformation. You may be thinking right now, well, if we can't tell what's true and what's not true, do I ever speak? I mean, do, do I ever say anything? You may be thinking, we, you know, will we ever need to speak? Can we only speak when I'm fully living the truth or, or, and I fully believe what I'm saying? Well, if that's the case, then we would live in a world of complete silence. It would be permanently silenced because we don't, all, none of us meet up that ideal. But sometimes we are called to proclaim God's truth even if we don't fully live it. Does that mean we're hypocrites? Well, to an extent, yes, but nobody lives up to those ideals. But I say we can speak, we can speak if we think our own words will lead us to transformation. We can grow into the truth that we speak. Um, this is what I do every Sunday. I try to speak truth, but know that I don't meet that ideal. But if I speak it and know that I can grow into it, then I can speak it with conviction and humility, that we can grow into it. And when we know that our lives speak louder than our words, then you can rest assured that your words will be spoken with humility. So speak, but speak only when your own words call yourself to transformation as anyone else. And then finally, rule number five, pray for God, God's grace, and know that you are not too foolish to know the truth, and you're not too weak to do the right thing. Let me say that again. Pray for God's grace because you are not too foolish to know, to know the truth. You can know the truth. And you're not too weak to do the right thing. We can do the right thing with the grace of God. And so that is the open door. We pray for the grace of God because we can know truth. And we can do the right thing. But we need to be empowered by the Spirit to do it. So enough of the bad news. Next week, we will look at the good news, and there is truth to be found. Uh, truth is not created. It's not manufactured. Truth is discovered, and that's what we aim to do and start to look, talk about next week. It is universal, and so it will be discovered by others, not just you and me, but it will be discovered by others. Uh, most Western culture, I think, is um, saddled with this conviction that humans must uh, rationally create and explain everything for themselves. And the problem is when somebody comes to the point and says, I cannot figure it out, then they think everything is absurd and meaningless, that there is no meaning except for what I decide. And no civilization, no humanity can function with that kind of worldview where everyone thinks they can decide what is true. Uh, what you get is just a bunch of competing egos at each other. So we're going to look next week at what that is that our lives must be grounded in the big story. And that's the point. Truth matters. But even though it seems out of reach, this is not a cause. This is not a cause for us to give up for despair. It is a cause to ground us in the big story, that truth matters. And that is an invitation to ground us in the big story. Um, I used to think that um, what God is doing something fresh and new but we're not the first ones. We may think we're the first ones, but we're not the first ones. But he is doing something fresh and new. And I used to think of it as, as, as going down the river in a kayak, and we're just going forward and faster and faster to get to that goal. And that's, that seems to be what uh, especially young and, and energetic people want to do. And uh, if you're maybe progressive, you're, you're trying to get to this goal down the, down the kayak, 
And if you're older or if you're really conservative, you, you kind of maybe want to take your boat and, and go back upstream to where there's a, there was a bay, there was a nice uh, pool of, of, of uh, resting water where, you can, where it was really nice for a while and you want to go back there. And so it's not going down in a kayak. It's not heading down in a kayak. It's more like a rowboat where you're in a rowboat and you're looking backwards, but you're going forward down the river. And so you're looking back and you're looking at the big picture. You're looking at the big story and realize, yeah, God is doing something new, but I'm not the first one. He's been doing this. He's been doing this throughout history. And we see this big picture and we need to ground ourselves into that pattern, that he, that pattern of what he's been doing, the promises that he's made, the promises that he has kept. And we are the benefit of that. And yes, we were going forward, but we look backwards to see the big story. Jesus calls this big story the kingdom of God. And that's where we will be going next week. The truth that Jesus proclaims. Because truth matters. Truth matters. And it may seem out of reach. But that's not to lead us into despair. That is to, to call us, to invite us, to ground ourselves in the truth of the big story. Father, we thank you for the grace we thank you for the big story that we fit in. Father, keep us seeking truth, your truth. Truth that passes understanding. Truth that grounds us. In the name of Jesus, amen.